I'm Ed Cowan, and this is Scaling Up. Humans drive value. You know, the people in software companies drive the value in this business. All other IPs created from within the company. And so there are more variables at play than what really looks good on paper. This podcast aims to educate and inspire by telling the stories of great growth companies as told by their CEOs and founders. TDM is an Australian-based investment firm that invests globally in fast-growing public and private companies. For more insights, visit our website, tdmgrowthpartners.com. Sankar Narayan, the CEO of SiteMinder, is my guest today. And the tapestry of his career is equal parts fascinating and inspiring. Born into the Indian middle class, Sankar has swung from branch to branch in a variety of roles across the US and the Australian technology sector. And this has enabled him to bring a really unique perspective to his current role. Sankar has become one of Australia's go-to scale-up experts, cutting his teeth at zero as both the CFO and COO, and now as the CEO of SiteMinder, a billion-dollar, truly global, fast-growing Australian technology success story. Sankar gives wonderful insights into managing founder transition, his own growth journey in learning some of the soft skills required to be a great CEO, and also how he thinks about the vertical SaaS playbook and how that's playing out at SiteMinder. There's no doubt SiteMinder has a massive opportunity ahead of it. It's already the dominant player worldwide, and yet it's hardly penetrated into its core market. And it will be Sankar's expertise in scaling both the systems and processes and cultures that will hold the business in great stead on this next stage of its growth journey. For any interested investors listening, TDM has started a new podcast of sorts. We've been uploading earnings calls from US public companies straight into Spotify, just allowing everyone to digest them a little bit more easily. Search earnings season in Spotify, or you can follow at earnings underscore pod on Twitter, and you'll get all the updates of the uploads right throughout the US reporting season. As always, if you have any feedback, I love hearing from you. Hello at tdmgrowth.com. There have been lots of interesting interactions in the last few months with listeners, and it always makes the project just a little bit more worthwhile when you hear from them. But now, onto the podcast and hearing from one of Australia's great operators. Sankar, welcome to Scaling Up. This is a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I thought a great place to start is probably just a thumbnail sketch of your background because it's such a rich and interesting history. Thank you for that. It's great to be in this podcast um, and talking to you about my experiences um, that have shaped my life and my career and, uh, you know, impacts the way I decide and operate every day. Starting a little bit of my life history, I grew up in India, a middle class family in India, and the choices are what most Indian parents want for the kids, you know, send the kids off to engineering school or either be an engineer or a doctor. Those seems to be the logical choices coming out. So I did what millions of other Indian students do when I started engineering. Got my engineering degree in uh, computer engineering. It's called electrical and electronics in those days. And uh, moved across to the U.S., And that's another natural migration. You know, a lot of Indian students go across to the U.S. for continuing the higher studies and then going into research as well. So I went across, did my master's in 
electrical engineering at SUNY Stony Brook in Long Island. Did that for a couple of years and then found a job in the Valley. That was my first into the Valley or having an exposure to Valley companies. So I was a design engineer doing some real high-tech design, uh, hardware and software design, you know, topic for another day. But um, then decided after four years, this was the days before the Googles and the Facebooks and all the, all the software companies that have followed since. This was, um, you know, late 80s, early 90s. I decided, okay, you know, there's got to be a career change. I don't want to do something interesting or different. Not that I wasn't doing anything interesting, but I wanted to do something different. So I went across, packed my bags, drove across the country to the Boot School of Business in Chicago. Uh, it's one of the top business schools um, and was very pleased, really excited to get admission and then went into finance. And again, it was a logical choice coming out of it. You know, you go to consulting or you go to investment banking are one of the two choices that you make at the time. And I got into the Boston Consulting Group into Sydney. And that's when careers start diverging in terms of what is a more consistent playbook for a lot of other Indians that have actually followed this journey. So I decided from Chicago to come over to Sydney for two years in 1995. And uh, my wife and myself are still counting down those two years. <laughs> so, you know, became an Australian citizen, had great experiences at BCG, then went on to a range of roles in Australian business, um, became qualified in finance, got my accountant qualifications, became a CPA, and went into the finance route. You know, people think engineers can do numbers, and so that seemed to be a logical choice. Since then, I've actually been on a variety of finance and operating type roles. Even when I was in finance, I, was a, I had a very operating and a strategic focus in the finance roles that I did. So it wasn't a pure finance type role. I had some great experiences. I was at Foxtel when there was some big transformation that happened, including the launch of digital services. Went across to Fairfax, a very, very transformative period when there was a lot of M&A and there was, there was a time of the media loss changing as well. I've seen the migration of the ad dollars away from print onto other media. And um, prior to zero, I was at Virgin as well, another very pivotal time. So I've been through a variety of industries over the years. And um, most recently, just prior to SiteMind, I was at zero. I went in as a CFO, but became the COO and the CFO. And so it's a brief history of my journeys over various industries, various operating environments, various specializations, but that's probably shaped me in terms of having a very wide-ranging view because I've seen and observed business practices in multiple geographies around the world, in multiple industries, and in multiple professional categories. And so I think it's actually contributed to my learning over the years. It's a wonderful tapestry just to hear you talk about it and how those different journeys have helped you get to this point. And I'm sure a thread that will keep emerging is your experiences at zero because you have become you know, an expert in really scaling these businesses from that 50 to 500 in, in revenue, let's say. that you know, There's a natural point in a business's evolution that sometimes the founder isn't necessarily the person to take it to the next level. They might be great startup people. They might be good scale-up people, but really not that growth that's required to bring in the rigor that really you know, makes these wonderful, durable companies. And it seems as though you've become that go-to guy in a sense. So 
Let's hone in on this. You touched on being that strategic CFO. You then moved to the COO role at Zero, and now the the CEO of SiteMinder, which you know, as I said in in the introduction, one of Australia's great software companies emerging throughout APAC, but truly global. Hundred million dollars in revenue, billion dollar valuation. What are the skills that you have learnt over the years, particularly in those strategic CFO roles, that have enabled you? to become the CEO that you are now at SiteMinder? One of the skills that I learned over the years is to be able to join the dots between an investment story to the operating side. You need to be able to join the dots on what drives value from a shareholder and investor perspective, what does it mean for the strategy of the business, and how do you deliver on the strategy from the operating side? And so be able to you know, join the dots into a closed loop and keep iterating has actually been one of my anchor points over the years. So I really thrive talking to investors, talking to shareholders, listening to the external perspective, looking in into the company, and then forming my strategy or help form a strategy along with the CEO that I was working with at the time and working to refine the strategy, tweak it, and actually scale it. Uh, I've got a great memory, um, David Kirk and myself, who's still involved with SiteMinder through Bellador. You know, we, we did a journey right through um, Germany at the time. This was the days where you could travel freely and we were doing a roadshow in those days, you know, trying to understand and, and see how various industries around the world were, were coping with structural changes in media and advertising. And some of the really transformative strategies come out of every one of those road trips. When you're actually talking to various investors, when you're talking to shareholders, and we're actually talking about your own story, any logic flaws in the way you communicate. If I can't communicate it very easily within 60 minutes to a prospective investor or a, or a new shareholder, there's a problem with my story. And so being able to refine that story and be able to translate it across to the company and make operating changes to make sure that you actually have a constructive, positive momentum on investor feedback, influencing strategy, driving the operating side, listening to your people, and then joining the dots on it for it to be a positive self-reinforcing loop has been very powerful to me over my career. And were there any skills as a as that strategic CFO that you thought were going to be you know, highly transferable and they haven't turned out to be, or strengths of yours that you thought, oh, that's going to be fantastic when I am the CEO and they haven't turned out that way and, and maybe vice versa? I've had to develop new DNA being a CEO. I've written a few articles on Forbes on exactly that. You know, there is a difference being a CFO when you're an advisor to a CEO or to the board and to the management team to actually being the person who's accountable for validating and making the decision. You know, very often the decisions are very obvious and sometimes you have to make difficult choices. And sitting in the seat actually requires a new level of clarity and focus that you need to bring, which takes into account a broader set of variables than what you used to do as a strategic CFO. So one of my big learning over the last few years, even as a COO at Zero and over here at SiteMinder is how do you bring those inputs, which is value-based, financial-based, economic-based, 
into something and translating into something that's human-based because humans drive value. You know, the people in software companies drive the value in this business. You know, both Zero and SiteMinder, we're not a manufacturing firm. We don't buy inputs. There's no raw materials that you buy that you actually add value and resell to the market. All other IPs created from within the company. So it is a very human-driven organization. And so there are more variables at play than what really looks good on paper from a financial plan or a strategic plan. And you need to actually really bring into account the broader set of variables, your customers. How do your customers feel? How do you work with your teams in the company? And then how do you work with the board? And how do you work with the other, you know, with the investors as well? So you need to be able to join a lot more dots as a CEO. And I started doing that at, at zero as well, but I had to do a lot more of it when I'm here. It's wonderful insight. Uh, Luke Anir was on the podcast earlier this series, and he described his company as a, as a people company masquerading as a software company. Wonderful, beautiful software, but it is the people that are creating the value, and, and you've just reiterated that. And just to pull on this thread a little bit more around the people, let's talk stakeholder management. As I said earlier, you have now been through two founder transitions, Rod at Zero, and now Mike Ford at SiteMinder. How have you managed those transitions? Because it is a big piece of the puzzle to have this big visionary founder perhaps realise that they're not the right person for the job to really fulfil that vision. And you need to really buy into that vision. You need to buy into the culture that they've built, grab that ball and and run with it. So let's talk about SiteMinder specifically to start with. Mike's still on the board and you know, a managing director, so to speak, and yet you're the CEO. How does that relationship work in practice? It's worked great. We all bring our own unique skill sets to what is required to successfully scale a business. You know, it's not easy. And I have the utmost respect for those entrepreneurs of founded companies, founded companies of scale and size, going through the early journey. And, you know, I can just imagine how hard it would have been in the early years of founding a company and growing a company. But then it comes a stage in every company's life where processes, activities, actions that worked really well in a small environment doesn't scale up when you're actually having to deal with multiple geographies, people in remote locations. Processes and communications need to be formalized, and it, it starts getting into a different DNA. Now, it's not that they couldn't do it. It's a question of you need to have a broader team to help assist and actually grow the company. And so it's, it's been working great with SiteMinder, so what we've been doing quite a bit over the last little while is making sure processes scale, products are scaling. Products are great, so we're actually working on a new suite of products coming on soon. But we want to more importantly make sure we have a way to join the dots on processes that scale on a global basis across multiple geographies, across multiple languages, different teams of people with different specializations. And so you need to take that next step it's really important to make sure that the vision doesn't get dramatically changed. Of course, you refine strategies, you refine outcomes, you, you, you chart the course and you work with the board and Mike and the management team to actually chart different courses around as you go. But you want to make sure that the purpose on which you started and embarked in the journey actually remains true because that is actually so important to the soul of the company. 
and you want to make sure you don't alter the soul of the organization. You have the added advantage of knowing where the speed bumps are and the road hazards as they come at you. A lot of the, the first-time founders you know, hit the speed bump not realizing that they've hit it and, and, and then things can unwind quickly from there. So in a sense, there, there is a huge advantage of having seen the playbook of scaling up before. But are there any qualities of, of the two founders that you've worked with that you have brought into your leadership style that have really impacted you? The two leaders that I worked with, the two founders that I worked with have been great supporting partners in my own personal journey as well. And why is it? Because we have actually been very complementary. I've heard other stories in other different environments where it's been a very difficult transition. But what's really worked well in my personal situation, and I've had really two great founders that I've had the privilege of working with, and both of them you know, great passion, great vision in starting the company. And they've taken it to a, a large, big step um, in terms of going past the initial you know, barriers of scaling up, being successful globally. So actually taking it a very large journey to the point, you know, where they become global players under their leadership. And so where the opportunity is, how do you take it from that level to something that is truly scalable across multiple geographies? For example, Sideminder, over 80% of revenues is outside of Australia. That's where our origins were. But, you know, we have a business where substantively it's actually growing in the rest of the world. Um, We have a high level of market penetration in this particular market in, in Australia. But for a company of that size and scale, I can't think of too many other companies that have the kind of footprint that we have. In, in terms of being multilingual, working in multiple offices around the world, and scaling in every continent. So I think it's been a great experience that has actually been very positive, and both of them have been very constructive and supportive. I certainly want to spend quite a bit of time on, on the SiteMinder business, but I'm, I'm going to keep pulling this thread around the people. And below you is Jonathan Kenny, very experienced CFO, who has been a CFO of, of a listed business before, You've sat in his seat before, and yet now as the CEO, you know the skills, the jobs to be done for him, and yet he's a very experienced CFO. How does that relationship work, having you seen that role as clearly as you have over your career? He is my closest partner in this business, in the way we are going forward. I interact with a lot of other players, other key members of the management team, um, with, with the team at large and also with the board members as well. But I work really closely with Jonathan Kenny. In a way, it makes the language easier because we have both spoken the same language. So we're not talking at cross purposes. We're talking the same language. But my thinking has evolved since I've actually transitioned out of a pure CFO role into more of an operating role. So Jonathan's been a, a great sounding board for me to actually test various strategies, making sure they're rational, make sure that I don't get carried away and and bring me back to ground every now and then. I think it actually does a wonderful job. So uh, I think it's a partnership that's working really well. Yeah. And as you said, that is the most important partnership of any business that's scaling to have that strong CFO is, is just so, so important. The last relationship that I, I want to dig into is that with your investors. There aren't too many software companies of, of your size and scale with 
an all-star cap table like you have and you know tcv have been owners of your business for a long time and, and david wan specifically sits on the board can you describe some of the interactions that you've had with your investors and and board members that have really been value add i love conversation with investors um, board members and non-board members. That's been one of the big highlights. I'll specifically come back to Dave Yorn. But generally, my approach to investors is I want to be able to talk the strategy of the business and to be able to discuss strategies as opposed to me telling them. So my relationship with Dave Yorn uh, predates SiteMinded to the zero days. He was a big investor, um, came in at a very pivotal time. And specifically with Dave Yorn, I remember going at zero, going through the San Francisco airport, and we only had half an hour to catch up with each other. And so he was trying to come through, and we, we were trying to decide whether we should actually, where in the airport would we meet and be able to discuss for two hours, you know, post-check-in. So in a way that we can actually talk about the zero, seize every opportunity that you can to actually discuss about the business. Because as I said before, you want to make sure that the strategies and the choices you want to be able to talk through and get some great feedback in terms of what they're saying and validate it and make sure, you know, we just reinforce it or change course. And so that was one of the reasons why I came across to SiteMinder with, with the continuity being Dave Yuan. Um, I've known David Kirk um, from my life before SiteMinder as well. So there's a lot of common threads coming into SiteMinder. My approach to investors is actually even the newer investors that came in as part of the recent capital raising that came in. I've got some great investors, but I've known almost all of them going back in time. I've interacted with them. I've dealt with them before. And I think that I'm truly blessed with the cap table that I have. For me, investors actually goes beyond capital. Investors is a way that you can actually talk through various strategies and sometimes, you know, sometimes you have to make choices and you have to make decisions. And, and I think it's, it's a great sounding board for you to say, hey, does it sound right? Does it not sound right? And not that you don't have conviction on it, but you actually just don't want to talk it through. And I think I found all of my investors' conversations very valuable, including with Dave Yuan as well. As I'm sure they have with you. You're listening to Scaling Up with Ed Cowan, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. Visit the website tdmgrowthpartners.com or for interesting insights and commentary, follow us on Twitter at TDM underscore growth. Let's spend some time talking about the SiteMinder business, the opportunity as you see it today and growing into this vertical SaaS playbook. And, And let me set this up for you. For those listeners that aren't familiar with SiteMinder, there are, let's say, 800,000 hotels in the world. A lot of those hotels, predominantly, you know, over 80% are independent hotels. Let's say one to 20 rooms, they might own one or three hotels. The hotels need to be connected to the guests. And historically, this has been done through distribution channels, bookings.com, Expedia, et cetera, et cetera. Most consumers should be familiar with that. But initially what SiteMinder did, and this is where the technology was so important. They provided the pipes into those distribution channels so that your mum and pup hotel or independent hotel can live time and in real time put up their rates, their vacancy, etc. Massive opportunity of which SiteMinder pretty much now dominates. 
So that's the context for the listeners. How have you thought about now really expanding the touch points of SiteMinder and driving into that vertical, knowing that that tip of the spear, that stickiness that you've provided through the channel management provides a wonderful opportunity going forward? All right, great question. Um, let's talk about the hotel technology industry before we get to the opportunity that SiteMinder is. Good place to start. Yeah. It is a very fragmented environment. Fragmented around the world. You do have large international global giants like the Booking and Expedia's of the world, the Airbnbs and Google. But when you come down to the hotel side, in terms of technology that the hotel uses, it's very fragmented. There's still a lot of pen and paper. So if you talk about verticals that actually one of the largest verticals around the world that still have manual processes, the hotel industry is one. It's incredible to think, really. It is. And so we are in the space, we started the origins of channel management, but I'll come back to the way we actually want to go and head to, we are heading towards with the suite of products we have. This is a large white space. And what are the barriers to the large white space is friction points, friction points in acquisition, friction points of the way you use it. So we provided great connectivity tool to take the friction away. A lot of work that we're doing right now is how do you take the friction out of the acquisition process and how do you ease the friction for the customer going forward? The evolution of SiteMind has been well underway prior, but it's going to accelerate even more over the next year or two or in the years to come, is evolution from a channel management business to a platform that drives guest acquisition, connecting to the hotel internal systems and interfacing to the world. We have the largest open ecosystem with over 1,000 connected partners around the world. And that kind of an open ecosystem is a great platform to, to scale up, to get your best of breed software solutions coming in through and provide the connectivity into change for you to be a distribution platform and a revenue enhancing platform beyond the channel management alone. So what you'll see over the course of the next year or two, we're well on the journey, but we'll actually evolve even more and more into a more comprehensive guest distribution platform and moving away from distribution to revenue management and revenue enhancement for the hotel itself. Uh, so what you'll see is a whole bunch of products that are coming out, and it's one of the things that we've been uh, working through the COVID shutdown. Um, we all had to make difficult choices, but one of the key features of our response has been how do we keep pushing through the key projects that are going to be transformative to the industry and to our company? And so as a first step, next month, we are going to launch the partner program. Now, I've seen some great positive examples of partner programs in other environments. And that's something that we, I personally am very excited about, only because we got such a big network, more than anybody else. And it's a great opportunity to bring the forces together for us to actually drive a common solution to, um, to the hotels through the SiteMinder platform. And so there's a lot of opportunities ahead for us, for us to be able to transform that automation that we can bring and actually goes beyond channel management to something that drives good guest bookings for all of the hotels. Yeah, and you touched on it there, but the, the joy of being a, a vertical software player is you can have that sticky product to start with, 
whether it's a an ERP in some cases or a, or a property management system. In your case, it was the channel management. But it gives you a couple of strong levers of growth to pull. One is just acquiring customers that you're doing naturally around the world. And the other is, as you talk about, this further expansion of products once you are such a, a sticky piece of software inside the business, whether it's payments, as I said, PMS, or you know lead generation for those hotels driving greater revenue. How do you think about balancing those two growth drivers of customer expansion and also product suite expansion? They're self-reinforcing because your product expansion also drives customer expansion. But for you to do the customer expansion, you want to make sure that the go-to-market disciplines and, and those processes and metrics are actually in the right place. And some, a lot of the work that we've done over the course of the last year is scaling up that side of the business as well as we are working on the new product suite that comes out that has been starting to roll out. It's been in pilot, uh, but it's actually uh, going to roll out. We have three segments of the operating segments in the business. We have what we call as larger enterprises. We have large independents, and then we have uh, what we call as a two to 20 room smaller independents. So the smaller independents tend to be all-in-one solutions. Um, but when we get to the larger independents and the enterprises, we work collaboratively with the PMSs that they have and actually provide that gateway and connect to the world through a whole range of products and suites and services. And we launched the App Store late last year. Um, that actually really has a lot of different capabilities that was difficult to be interfaced to every single PMS. Then you actually connect, connect to our platform and they get access to all of the hotels that are actually sitting on the platform. And so the way we have approached this push between ARPA expansion and also customer push, I think they both have to go hand in hand. The way we're thinking is we need to be able to drive customer growth so that you actually drive the penetration on the, and the white space penetration around the world, but at the same time, you actually have new products and services that we can actually overlay on top of that. And so over the course of the last couple of years, we have had some really good new products that have come out that have been a major revenue driver for us, and we're looking to accelerate that, including on the demand side of the equation. Um, but also, we're also reinforcing our go-to-market to be able to acquire hotels more seamlessly. Hearing you speak about it live time, the structural competitive advantage of, of doing those simultaneously is strong. And, you know, the App Store is a great example of, of driving network effects that will really turbocharge your business in the next three to five years. Having talked about scaling the business model, let's talk about scaling the business itself truly global business. I think 20 offices around the world, across eight countries, 800 staff. There isn't a country in the world where you probably don't have a customer. I've heard you talk before that, you know, the, the mum and dad who run a hotel in Abubajan who were using pen and paper are now using Sightminder. So you need to be multilingual as a software. A lot of your staff need to be multilingual. How do you think about scaling, you know, the, the engine of the business all the while these common cultures and values that need to be instilled? Yeah, it's a great challenge. And herein lies an opportunity as well. The challenge is that a lot of barriers, you need to be able to get the local flavor, but have economies of scale. What you don't want to be is a bunch of local businesses that are pieced together, then all you're doing is just operating a global portfolio. That is not very scalable. But on the other hand, if you're actually saying it's a one size that fits all, irrespective of local needs and customs and geographies, 
then that's not going to be successful either. So you need to be able to strike the balance. And one of the aspects of my life that has changed during the COVID is my travel. When I was last year as a CEO of SiteMinder, every month I was in a plane. And Sydney is a fair distance from any other place outside of Australia or New Zealand. You know, you've got to travel quite a bit to get there. And so I used to take monthly trips to either Bangkok or London or Ireland or Dallas and keep rotating. So there was put a lot of stress on your travel, but that's the only way that I thought was being able to listen to the teams on the ground, being able to appreciate what was happening on the ground and be able to understand the local needs and concerns while we actually build a global platform that has great scale benefits. So being able to join the local needs to a global platform is critical when we're looking to penetrate a big white space. Now, of course, our routines have changed. Um, you know, I haven't been doing any bit of traveling uh, off late and doesn't look like that's going to be a feature. But one of the practices that I've continued is being able to listen to each one of the regions and understand them. So last night, for example, I had... I was talking to our Asia-Pacific head who's sitting in Thailand. So we had an hour and a half going through country by country. You've got to get down to what's happening in the Philippines, what's happening in Vietnam, what's happening in, in Indonesia, what's happening in Thailand. And so understand what's happening in market, what the needs are, what the conditions are, and be able to piece together common threads and also points of divergence. And make sure that you actually have a system that is scalable, but can be adaptable to local needs, which is exactly what we did through COVID. Not every country had the similar type challenges. Some of the challenges in, in developing countries like Thailand and South America actually were different to the challenges in Australia or Europe or the US. So we actually modified a product suite to specifically address the needs of those Asian countries in a way that didn't put too much burden on the operating fabric of the business. And so constantly listening to people on the ground is absolutely vital as you scale. Then I do a monthly all hands now. So I do three sessions, one for Asia Pacific, one for EMEA, one for AMAS for the three regions. And there is an open slider. Now it's become a matter of some amusement to the rest of the team members in terms of the dialogue that goes on it, completely transparent and anonymous. It is really important that you get anonymous feedback because not every staff member, you know, wants to be able to raise the hand and actually be able to ask a question in a big public open forum. And so I have a slider and, um, you know, to get some really great questions, you know, on the strategy and the performance and questioning management as well. So it's not, they're not being easy sessions but they've always been interesting and you actually take a very positive approach to it because you're listening to the teams around the world and you interact with them. And they feel that they can talk to me on a personal level that is so important to connect with the teams. So then you can understand the issues and the challenges that every team member around the company is actually facing. Let's pull on this COVID thread a little bit more because it is such an important time in everyone's life that has created stress for many. 
Do you think one of the net benefits perhaps for the culture of the business is that transparency that is starting to shine through through these all hands? Yeah, I actually think it has been a positive. I think we are more connected transparently today than I was with the team members a year back. I can tell you that. Only because it's it's the approach we take with team communication. So, you know, every, every month I front up, I talk to them about the performance of the business. It's important for the teams to understand why you're doing what you did and to have a discussion about it. And you need to be able to communicate to the team members as to why we actually took certain decisions or on what path we are on. So what I do is actually talk about the brief performance of the business. This is the way of seeing. This is what's driving the thinking. This is the way we're going forward. And so that interaction between myself and the team members is so critical for us to go forward. And, and actually, I frankly think I'm better connected and we're all better connected as a team today than pre-COVID. Now, one of the things we do need to watch is the social aspect and the collaborative aspect that actually has taken a bit of a backseat. You know, you can only do so many whiteboard sessions on Google Jamboards and others. You, know, you lose the spontaneity a little bit when you actually have 10 or 15 people in a, re- in, in a call. So we're looking to make sure we actually capture that, you know, through smaller sessions and also, you know, making sure we're able to meet in a, in a physically safe way for those who are actually able to do so. But for the most part, I think we've, you know, we went remote in March and we've been actually working quite constructively through the period. So the focus for us is how do we retain the good elements of that communication and the flexibility that remote working does provide. You know, we don't call it remote, we call it flexible working. Um, And how do you combine it with the collaborative aspects of actually being able to brainstorm different ideas together? Do you think this hybrid model of collaborating together perhaps in person while doing your deeper work in a more dispersed way is is the future of work uh, you know a lot of CEOs that I've spoken to can't wait for everyone to get back in the office because they have really found it challenging in terms of productivity that might have seen a little tick up to start with starting to wane the collaborations fallen off how do you think about what the future of work at Sightminder does look like I feel it is going to be unlikely people are going to come in, rush in peak traffic five days a week. I personally feel and believe that those days are gone. So you know, you, you're going to have people are meeting socially, but you know, I was just driving through coming this morning. People are moving around, but I didn't see that many people on the road commuting. And, you know, it was a bit of a rainy day today. And so... I guess a lot of people do find, you know, they're more productive staying at home and working through. So I actually believe that this crisis is changing the way we actually do work and collaborate and will be a permanent change into the future. Having said that, I do think we haven't fully solved our ability to maintain a culture which has been heavily influenced by all physically working together. Physical environment has been such an important part of how we have worked over hundreds of years. And for us to be able to maintain a culture, some companies have done it well, but to be able to maintain a culture in a slightly distanced way is actually so critical. And we're working on various strategies to be able to do that, including open, transparent communication that I talked about and a lot of ways to make sure you actually start 
making sure teams feel part of each other. That sense of belonging needs to be really reinforced as we actually working in a, in a, in a remote environment. So this hybrid model, I believe, is absolutely there to stay. And companies that embrace this hybrid model are going to be even more successful is actually drawing on the best of both worlds. One of the dark sides of, of isolation and working from home is mental health, and, and it's now being well documented. How do you feel about, as a CEO, you know, it can be a lonely place at the best of times, but when, as opposed to being able to just spitball in the office, maybe an idea or, you know, see your CFO or any, any other sort of trusted advisor that you have in the office, how have you managed your own mental health and how has that helped shape your empathy for others in the business? I think it's a very critical aspect of human life that we have to continue evolving. It's been one of the big themes for me personally, and I've made it a priority for us to address mental health. So I tackle that, I address it in every all hands to make sure we talk about us taking measures to look after our own mental health first before we actually look, look for the others as well around us. Let's talk about human behavior. You know, we're all, we're all social creatures. You know, we like going to work. We like interacting at work. And for hundreds of years, I don't know, for me, I haven't looked at it even beyond, but, you know, this office environment type structure has been all people working together in a physical location. You know, there's a big social aspect of you coming to work, and that doesn't exist anymore, or others exist in a very reduced state. So I actually do have concerns about people being able to sustain mental health. You know, people are working in confined spaces for long periods and going from one Zoom meeting or Google Hangout after another. And so I want to make sure that we do break that. It's been a big part of our employee program. Dion, uh, our chief people officer, has been really, uh, um, been working very closely with Dion to make sure that we do lots and lots of mental health programs to make sure we look after each other. I've personally seen instances of degradation and mental health outside of Sightminder, not at Sightminder, but outside, in my experiences outside. So it has been a big key focus area of, of mine. And we'll continue to evolve. You know, we do a lot of mental health programs um, and we rolled out lots of initiatives, including social initiatives as well, that actually uh, brings that you know, additional dimension apart from, you know, Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting or Google Hangout after Google Hangout. You know, you do need to actually make sure that you bring that social construct in a work environment, especially when a lot of people are working in an isolated way. I get out. I try to get out on the weekend. And so, you know, you, you want to maintain your own. Uh, one of the things that we talked about, you know, outside of mental health, and this goes to the previous question, is how we actually set common goals and objectives for the team. For a long, long time, we've all managed through visual signs of effort. People come in early in the morning, late in the evening. Oh, you know what? You've done, you've done a great job. Oh, you're working really hard. People are toiling equally hard in some cases in homes, and we don't know about it. So, you know, you don't see those this, this visual clues are not there. You know, you don't come in in the morning. So when I used to come in the morning at 7, 7.30 because, you know, I have different times to coordinate with, with global time zones. I used to come in in the morning, I see somebody there at 7, 7.30, and if that person's still there at 6.30 and doing it more often than not, I, I would say, you know, why are you working, you know, what projects are you working on, why do you have to work this hard, 
and what can we do to actually help support that. But you don't have those clues anymore. And so it is really important to go from management by effort to management by outcomes and objectives. You know, everybody says that, but it's something that we have actually really pushed forward really strongly, that is actually to the mutual benefit of both the team member and the company to make sure what are we trying to achieve, what are you doing? So making sure that the effort is properly sized, even though we are not sitting in the same place and we don't have those visual cues over hundreds of years, which has been the basis of management in terms of how people are managed. So one of the new DNA, it's always there before, but it's something that we are actually driving very hard, which we did last quarter, you know, it's a young company, and so we have actually all worked together. Everybody knew what to do. We are all in the same place. And to actually have more structured communications and, and what the goals are and objectives and making sure we're able to communicate that effectively. It's a, a wonderful and eloquent way of, of putting it, the management by outcome rather than effort. Let's zoom out just for one last question, and that's around the macro impact of covid if you're just looking at a, at a high level, you probably think COVID has had a material impact on SiteMinder. The, the small independent hotel business has probably really suffered. But at the same time, the other side of that coin is if they can get through this initial jolt, I feel as though there is going to be a, a shift towards the small independent hotel in the future because of you know, future pandemic concerns and, and health and germs and, and, and the like. Do you have a view on that? I have very strong views on it. Um, what's happened over the last little while is corporate travel has been impacted, international travel has been impacted, but regional areas, many parts of it, have actually been booming quite a bit. Occupancy levels in some parts of regional New South Wales has actually been very, very strong. You know, small centres outside of Sydney, so hard to get restaurant bookings on a weekend at short notice. So what's happened, and I've seen that, I've seen this happen in Sydney. I'm looking at the data in Madrid. I'm looking at the data in London. I'm looking at the data in the US. I see a very, very consistent pattern that is emerging. Metro areas are actually more challenged from a hotel occupancy perspective. Regionally areas, less so. Not saying that they're not, there have been lots of challenges for them. So I'm not trivializing the amount of challenge they have. We all went through a big lockdown, but there's a greater line of sight to a recovery in it, particularly in a place where, when you can't travel outside of state, as has been here in, in Australia and you know, parts, lots of Europe, um, parts of Europe are actually going into similar strategies with localized lockdowns. But with borders being shut and you know bubbles emerging, what you're going to see is regional tourism being much better placed than major metro areas. And while we do have lots of properties in big metropolitan areas around the world, and we work really closely with them to help them see through the crisis as well, we actually over-index on hotels outside of major metros only because of the size of it, because they tend to be bed and breakfast or smaller size properties, larger independent properties that are outside of the, of the CBD. And so we've been working very well on that. You know, we, we've seen some very positive trends outside of the CBD, whereas the city center itself is undergoing a bigger challenge. So I actually do think for the health and the economy to, to come through, you know, we do need the CBD to come back, you know, in in terms of having travel. And I'm an optimist on that front. 
But I do see that hotels with relatively low travel restrictions in a localized environment are actually doing fine at this point in time. So we're working on both sides. And I actually think, that, you know, how do we work better with the hotels that actually do have higher levels of occupancy? And how do we drive greater demand and distribution for those who actually have a challenge attracting guests? We have rolled out a lot of new tools because we've got so much data on our platform and be able to share trends and behavior in a macro environment to help them see through the crisis has been one of the key hallmarks and features of our response to our hotels. Let's wrap this all up in a bow. We've had a, a wonderful career over many years now, and it feels as though the best is yet to come. But if you could give some advice to a young Sankar at university studying electrical engineering in you know southeastern tip of, of India, if there's one piece of advice that you could roll out knowing what you know now, what would it be? Aim high. Don't set modest goals for your life. You may not achieve it, but you always have to aim high. I think that is uh, wonderful advice for everyone listening. Sankar, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Ah, great pleasure. It's great to be here.